1: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jillian Richardson.
1: And he just looks at me and says, I would
3: like to be your slave. <laughs> I'm like uh <laughs> Okay.
2: That and more, but before that, I just wanna say, hey, we are having so much fun with our Patreon. Patrons, If you don't know, you can help to keep Risk running. If you go to patreon.com slash risk and become one of our patrons, could be as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month, whatever you can give. There are all kinds of amazing perks and prizes. We just made a music video for our fans that we posted there. I do little diaries. I record things. I take photos and have behind-the-scenes stuff that patrons can check out there on the site and there's all kinds of like prizes for particular amounts that you can give so you can check all that out at patreon.com slash risk we super really desperately need for our fans to be showing support for the show financially and that is an easy and fun way to do it patreon.com slash risk Also, you can maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business with Stamps.com. You don't have to waste any time going to the post office. Stamps.com is a better way to get postage. Just use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. And then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office. You can do from your own desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our offer code risk for this special offer. It's a four week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait, go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R-I-S-K that's stamps.com enter risk stamps.com never go to the post office again now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Go team behind me now. We're calling this week's episode, Getting to Know You. These are three stories about relationships that were either sexual or romantic, or in one case, a family relationship that took very strange turns, very dramatic shifts we're going to hear in a little bit from Jillian Richardson, who is a freelance writer here in New York City. She was a fan of the show, and she pitched us this fantastic story a while back. So we had her do it at the Bell House in Brooklyn, where we do our show once a month. Uh, but before that, we're going to hear a story from our Montreal show that we did Oh, gosh, I don't know, uh, sometime in 2016. <laughs> I can't remember when. But it was a really, really fun, sweet show in Montreal. And this fella, Jeff Gandel, pitched us a bunch of stories that uh, was very, very interesting. It's a very brand new little storytelling scene that's popping up there in Montreal. So we hope to come back soon. Anyway, here he is now. This is Jeff Gandell who you can also find on Twitter at Jeff Gandel with a story we call Wart and All.
4: So, uh, about 12 years ago, I'm an English as a second language teacher, and I I give lessons in my apartment, and and one day this woman comes in, this Peruvian woman named Angela, and she's just a vision. She's got dark skin and dark curly hair, and she's wearing a bandana, and she has crooked teeth, something I've always found irresistible in women, Um, and I'm immediately smitten with her, and and, uh, she starts taking lessons, and as the weeks go on, I become more and more attracted to her, and... One day, in a fit of courage, I ask her out, and she says yes, and we start going out, and we start dating, and we fall in love, and it's just this beautiful, magical summer romance, and I'm so happy, and I'm certain I've never met anyone that I've loved more, or a situation that's, that's more perfect for me, and a few weeks into our relationship, uh, we're planning to go away for the weekend, and the night before we're planning to go away, I have a friend's bachelor party. So I go to my friend's bachelor party and I want to be a good boyfriend and I want to be in good shape for when we go away the next day so I don't drink very much and there's drugs there and I don't do any drugs and and I want to make sure that I'm a good boyfriend and that I'm responsible. I still stay up all night because it's a friend's bachelor party and I have... Responsible not responsibilities, but a commitment to my friend to at least uh, help him have a good time on this evening So I get home early in the morning, and I want to get a couple of hours sleep before it's time for Angela and I to go away for the weekend and she calls me early in the morning, and she can tell that I'm exhausted I'm really tired and she says to me, you know if you're really tired you can sleep and we can go away another weekend and I'm like Thank you. Uh, yes, can we please do that? That would be amazing. I'm just too tired to drive anywhere, and I'm thinking not only am I the perfect boyfriend, but she's the perfect girlfriend She really gets me. Uh, we have this symbiotic relationship where we just work together, and she fully understands me, and it's wonderful So I have a peaceful sleep um, I wake up and I call her later in the day, and she says I don't want to talk to you and hangs up the phone And I'm like fuck you know, she seemed so cool with it and so I call her back a few times and she keeps hanging up on me and I can't take it because when people are upset with me, I feel like it's always my fault. It's 100% my fault and this enormous sense of guilt comes over me. So I have to take care of this situation right away. So I hop in my car and I drive to her house and I see her on the way, on her bike and I put my window down and I say, Angela, and she ignores me. She's like, I'm not even there. And this is like the most painful moment of my life. It's like this woman that I'm in love with is completely ignoring me and I'm yelling her name and she just bikes away. So she ignores me for two days and I'm, and I'm in just a state of total agitation because I'm sure that I've, I've done something to fuck up this relationship. It's all my fault. I take it all on myself. Uh, this goes on for a couple of days, and then we then we make up, and you know things continue. Things get more intense, but as the relationship goes on, she starts to get angrier and angrier about things that I do. Where it gets to the point where about once every two weeks. She explodes in a fit of rage over something I'd done. And, and her anger was really getting to be a little bit too much for me. And, and one day I tried to break up with her and I went to her house and I, I tried to break up with her and she was yelling and I couldn't take it. So I, I ran out of her house and she was following me. And I'm uh, walking back to my apartment and I had told her previously that like, my dad used to yell at me when I was a kid and it scared me. So she was like up in my face saying, like, Do I scare you? Do I scare you like your father used to scare you? And I'm like, No, this is much scarier. <laughs> than anything my father ever did and she's just like following me and and i go back to my apartment and i don't want to let her in my apartment um because i'm afraid of her so i circle around the block a few times and she's just like following me and in my face like do i scare you do i scare you i'm like yes what do you do you want me to say uh so that i can't get rid of her so i go into my apartment and she muscles her way into my apartment and we're still arguing she pours a glass of orange juice over my head um it's a big mess so this is the kind of madness that our relationship had descended into around the same time um, I had a giant plantar wart at the bottom of my foot um, and I would, I would go to the dermatologist once every two weeks where he would spray the wart with liquid nitrogen and has anyone ever had liquid nitrogen treatments on a wart? I guess you don't want to admit it, don't yell it, uh, never mind. <laughs> person, the person next to you doesn't want to know. Um, but it, the way it works is like it doesn't hurt at first, like the first treatment, because warts are kind of, they have a tough exterior. Uh, but as it gets deeper and deeper into the wart, as the treatments go on, it starts to hurt more and more until it's like this excruciating stinging pain that lasts for like a few hours after each treatment. So my life at the time was punctuated by this bi-weekly emotional pain where Angela would just yell at me and get angry at me, and this bi-weekly physical pain where the dermatologist would spray my foot with liquid nitrogen. And, and for me, you know, I kind of thought that the wart was some kind of physical manifestation of how shitty a person I was, uh, that I was doing something to make Angela angry, so this was being paid back on me with the wart on my foot. And they also, they had appeared, like our first fight and the wart had appeared around the same time, uh, so it was very clear what I had to do. I had to break up with Angela, I had to get out of this relationship, and there was also some kind of belief that if I broke up with Angela, the wart would disappear also. Um, This is the way my mind works. Uh, so I planned to break up with her, I invited her over to my apartment, which is obviously the worst place to break up with somebody, um, because you can't leave. Um. <laughs> so I invited her over to my apartment, and I poured her a nice glass of orange raspberry and passion fruit juice, and, uh, and I started to do it like, as passively and as softly as I can. And I'm like, you know, Angela, I'm, I'm, I'm not really happy. She's like, w- you know, why are you not happy? And I'm like, well, you know, we fight all the time. And she's like, yeah, well, we do, but we, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in our relationship too. And I'm like, uh, wouldn't you be happier if we weren't together? You know, the, the, the most passive way you can break up with someone. Yes. Uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't be happier if we weren't together. So this goes on for like an hour, this back and forth where we're not getting anywhere and I'm, I'm losing ground. So I figure I need to take it to a new level. So I look her in the eyes and I say, Angela, I'm not in love with you anymore." Well that does it, because she she grabs some CDs from the rack next to her and starts throwing them against the wall, and, and then she takes her glass of juice and launches it across the room where it shatters against the left speaker, splattering glass and juice everywhere. And Why the fuck do I keep giving her juice? I feel like juice is some kind of soothing drink to give to people when they're upset. Like, it's part of my Jewish nature to make people feel calm at all moments. And then she starts punching and kicking me and, and she's small but her anger makes her strong and I'm, I'm batting away her fists and her legs and, and I don't want to hit her back but I don't know what to do so I say, get the fuck out of here. Which is bad, because I wanted like a perfect, beautiful breakup, and, and then the last, one of the last things I'm gonna say to her is, get the fuck out of here. And she runs to the table in the hall and grabs the keys and then runs to my bedroom and, and belly flops down on the bed with her key, my keys trapped underneath her, and, I, and I'm trying to wrestle them away from her, and I can't get them away from her, and finally I'm, I'm just like, Angela, we need to get out of here. Like Let's go to a cafe and talk. We just need to leave the apartment. As soon as we're outside and I lock the door, I run. <laughs> I just bolt. I run away and it's a snowstorm and I pull away in my car in the snowstorm with her like chasing me like a film. And I go to my friend's house and I'm in a state. I'm like shaking and I'm all, I'm all fucked up. And, and my friends are like, my friend and his girlfriend, they're like, you know, if she's hitting you, probably made the right choice in breaking up with her. And that makes me feel better. And then the next morning I find little torn uh, pieces of photographs of us embedded in the snow all over my car. Breakup confetti. And that makes me feel even better that I've made the right choice. And, and I'm certain that with Angela out of my life, the wart will disappear, and my body will return to its pristine state of youthful perfection. Which is not what happens. About three weeks after breaking up with Angela, I slip on some ice snowboarding at Jay Peak and my thumb bends backwards. And... Yeah, yeah, I know there's a problem when I can't roll a joint on the car ride home. After a 14-hour emergency room visit, I leave the Montreal General with a broken thumb and a honking cast on my arm. About four weeks after breaking up with Angela, I get my three front teeth replaced with fake ones. I knew I'd had to get one of them replaced because it had no roots, a result of a previous medical condition. And the dentist said he would have to do a little filing of the two healthy teeth next to the problem one. And after he did the little filing and went to fetch the temporary bridge, I saw that what he meant by a little filing was shaving the healthy teeth down to little nubs to serve as anchors for the bridge. I rubbed my tongue on them and they were like sharp little chiclets. They weren't teeth anymore. I looked in the mirror. I looked like an old man without his dentures. I stood in front of the mirror that night and I looked at the bridge, it wasn't the right size. It was a temporary bridge, it wasn't the permanent one, but it wasn't the right size. And it was 27 and I had fake buck teeth. My cast itched. uh, The bottom of my foot burned from the previous day's nitrogen blast. things couldn't get any worse. And that's when Angela calls. I'm coming to pick up my bike, she says, and slams the phone down. I'm terrified, there's, there's no way that I could face her in my state, what if she punches me in my bridge? It was very expensive. <laughs> and what if she breaks my cast? It's 14 hours in the emergency room, so I don't know what to do, and then I get an idea, so I take her bike, and I leave it in the lobby of my building, along with a note saying I'd had to run out. I was very proud of this plan. There was a chance someone might steal it, but that was a chance I was willing to take. <laughs> And then I go in my bedroom, and I, I go to my apartment. I turn off all the lights, and I, I sit in the middle of the living room, far away from the windows with the lights off, just terrified of moving. And so about an hour later, the buzzer from downstairs starts buzzing, and it doesn't stop, and I'm like, shit, she didn't buy my, my ruse. <laughs> I wasn't home. And, and she just bu- it's like a constant buzz for like half an hour, and I'm just sitting in the apartment, terrified to move. I called my friend. I think my friend found it funny. I was scared. And so I'm just sitting there, like this buzzing is invading my brain. And then finally it stops, and, I, and I, well, I wait a few minutes, and then I crawl over to the window, and I look outside, and there's Angela in the middle of the street, just looking up at my window, and our eyes meet. Busted. <laughs> so I have to go downstairs to face her, and my heart's pounding, and I, and I go downstairs in the lobby, and she's like, Somebody could have stolen my bike. I'm like, I'm afraid of you. I just spent 14 hours in the emergency room and, and sure enough she comes up to me and starts hitting me in the chest and, and I just run outside and I run down the street and around the corner and, and into the police station. What am I doing in the police station? I'm shaking and I'm numb and I, I can't speak and I say to the policewoman behind the counter, my ex-girlfriend is hitting me. The police sitting back in her chair with her feet up on her desk, bored. Like this happens 10 times a night. And she's like, do you want to press charges? No, I I don't want to press charges. Well, there's nothing we can do. Okay, (laughs) thanks police. Um, So I leave the police station and, and I go back to my apartment and Angela's there, when I tell her where I've been, she's like, I can't get arrested, I'm applying for my citizenship. Well, don't go around hitting people. <laughs> and she starts crying and, and I say, look, let's, let's just go for a coffee and talk about it. That coffee I said we would go for that we never did. So we go to the cafe and things calm down in the cafe and I apologize for the way things ended. And she asks me what happened to my thumb and she tells me she started swing dancing and we even manage a few laughs. I'd like to sleep over, she says. She starts crying and telling me how much she misses me and how much she wants to sleep in my arms. Now, you'd think this would be an easy decision. I was just cowering in fear of her in my apartment, but I was tempted and you know, she was, her face was puffy from the tears and she was a mess and she was wearing a sweater vest with orange track pants. But she was cute, and I was still attracted to her. And, and besides that, when we'd been together, I, I'd been as attracted to the madness and the emotional abuse as her laugh or her smile. You know, we, we like to divide relationships into good and bad parts, but it's, it's all part of the same package. And when, when you're in love, you're, you're obsessed with all the parts of your relationship and the person. But I also felt in that moment that it wasn't all my fault. You know, I had been blaming myself entirely for everything that was happening, but I wasn't responsible for the way she felt and the relationship, I was at most 50% responsible, maybe less. And so I kind of forgave myself a little and I said, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. In the weeks that followed or the months that followed, I, I, my thumb healed and I got my permanent bridge and it looked good, it looked better than my original teeth. The wart went away came back, went away, came back. Finally, it went away for good. And my dermatologist praised my tenacity in, in sticking out the treatments. He said, most people just let their warts go on forever. I thought that was a, an apropos metaphor for my relationship with Angela. <laughs> but once I realized that it's not all my fault and I can't be responsible for how other people feel and there was two people in this relationship, not just me. Once I forgave myself, the wart went away, and it never came back. Thank you. Gene had warts.
1: Oh, it was
0: disgusting. It was, it was gross. It just was gross, but on your hand, especially right in the middle of your hand, it's like very, I mean, Hmm.
4: Unpleasant.
5: I've got this you whole goddamn thing. has been a big pain in the ass. Under my skin. Now look, there's no need to panic. Mm-hmm. growth Oh God, that was awful. Oh, that's disgusting.
2: I told you so. It isn't as bad as it looks. There's nothing to be ashamed of. War.
3: So, who here had a brother or sister who was older than them and way cooler than they were? Yeah, so that was me. Uh, My sister was the kind of person, she was six years older, she was the star of the varsity volleyball team, she dated a Calvin Klein underwear model, and she was the kind of person when she walked by a guy, one time he was in a golf cart and was just looking at her and crashed into a tree. So meanwhile, there's 10-year-old me. I'm in the school chamber choir. We have this outfit that's like one of those roughly white shirts that are not flattering at all. A blue cummerbund, blue bow tie. I do Harry Potter role-playing with my friends. We're just really different people. I just feel like I can't compare to the coolness that is my sister. I get my first kiss when I'm 16 to a guy who is a, he's obsessed with dirt biking. His name is George Stern. Uh, He ignored me in driver's ed. I lost my virginity at 19 to a guy who I thought was really cool and then the next week he invited me to a party and was making out with another girl when I got there. So by the time I was 20 years old, I really, I had no confidence in myself in relation to men. I thought that I wasn't going to be able to have a good relationship with a guy. Uh, So when I'm 20 years old, I am interning in New York City. It's really a place where, you know, people say anything could happen, but I was spending most of my nights at Columbia University just sitting on my laptop and just browsing through the internet. One day, I'm watching a documentary called Hotline, which is about people whose job it is to be a hotline, and they talk to strangers. And there were people who were psychics or who worked for crisis hotlines, and there was one about sex workers who worked for hotlines. And this, I thought, was very interesting. And one of the sex workers mentioned that she got most of her clients through FetLife, Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, FetLife is a website that's like Facebook for people who have kinks and I was just really curious I was like I want to go on this website and like check this out so I made kind of a shell account just just to see what it was like you know just to look around like I wasn't going to do anything of course but I started to notice I was just going through people's profiles and saw things that I really liked and started adding it to my own profile. So slowly I start to build a profile. Then I notice there's an events tab and it has things that cool kinky people do in New York City. And I was like, "Mm, maybe I'll do something like that, maybe in the future. And that's how I end up in a sex dungeon. (laughs) I am there, I am standing in front of an entire class and I am learning how to paddle a man. Uh, And it's me and the demographics of this class is totally different than I thought it would be. I thought it would be a lot of people who were new at this and didn't really know what they were doing. Turns out it was me and a bunch of professional dominatrixes who were just there to kind of up their skills, just learn some new stuff for fun, and then it's me. And somehow I end up in the front of the room learning how to do all these things because the teacher thinks it's cute because I'm absolutely terrified. (laughs) At one point in the class, the teacher says, all right, uh, it's time for us to work one-on-one. She gives us a script, and she just goes, all right, grab your slaves. And uh, there's a bunch of men, by the way, in the back of this room who are there as volunteer slaves, uh, which to me was very new. It's like, okay, cool. um, I'm still processing that you just said the phrase volunteer slaves. (laughs) Uh, But of course, all these women are pros, so they are ready. They do not give a fuck. They see someone who they like. There's like this one guy who's really hot. He's a surgeon. They see him and they grab him and all the guys are taken except for one. And that's who I end up with. Uh, He looks like he maybe could have been my cab driver on the way over there. Uh, He's in his 60s. He's Eastern European. He's kind of chubby, and he really doesn't speak English. I'm like, how did this guy end up in this class? It's like a very specific place for you to be. Uh, So this is my partner for... I'm in this sex dungeon for four hours. I'm learning how to do everything to this guy. I am freaking out inside the whole time I'm losing my mind on the outside thank god this teacher gave me a script of things to say so I'm just looking at it I'm just trying to use my like soft threatening voice telling him to look at the floor so I don't have to make eye contact with him because I'm panicking (laughs) and I'm in there for four hours by the time the class is over I leave I just get out of there I'm standing on the sidewalk and I cannot believe I was just in a sex dungeon for four hours and I'm just like, oh I don't know, I guess I like go get falafel now? Like what do I what do I do? And I'm just looking at my phone and someone taps me on the shoulder and says, Um, goddess? <laughs> uh, I don't even realize this person could even possibly be talking to me. So I just keep looking at my phone and they tap me again on the shoulder and just um, goddess? I turn, I'm like, oh, that's me. He's, this person's talking to me. Right, of course. Yes, Domly, I'm a dominant woman. Yes, this person's talking to me. And I turn around, and it's the surgeon from the class who everyone was so excited to have as their slave. I'm just like, uh, hey. And he tells me that he was really into the way that I presented myself in the class, and he thought I was really beautiful. And he just looks at me and says, I would like to be your slave. <laughs> I'm like, uh Okay. I uh I'm i I'm so bad at being dominant just on the streets of New York City. I'm like, uh, like we could no, I mean like what, do you wanna do that? We're like, oh no, I shouldn't be asking you if you wanna do that, because this is about what I want. Right, okay. Uh and I'm honest with him and I tell him that I'm I've, I've not really done this before. I don't really know what I want, so I get this guy's number, I take a few days to think about it. And I decided that, yeah, I want to do this. I want to try this out. So I'm staying at a dorm at Columbia University, as I said. Uh, So (laughs) I tell this guy to come all the way uptown to Columbia University to give me a foot massage. Because that's one thing in the class that we did that I really loved. And I was like, I can do this all day. This is easy. Uh, And he's into it. And so he meets me in front of the library at Columbia University. And I'm like, oh, God, like, again, we're in public? Like, what is the power dynamic here? Like, I don't want to be mean to this person when there's other people around, like, unless that's what he wants, but I have no idea. So we're just here for this, like, domination thing. I'm just like, how was your subway ride? Um, how's your CrossFit class going? What's up with you? And he seems like kind of off-put that I'm not acting all dominating like I was in the class. I tell him again that I'm nervous, we walk all the way across the campus and then we get to the security guard who's guarding my dorm. Uh, and we both have to give our IDs to the security guard who takes a little bit longer than usual to look at the IDs because this guy is like 15 years older than I am. The security guard's just like, what the hell is going on here? But he just looks and he's... I'm like waiting for him to say something and he just goes, you kids have fun. <laughs> cool. So we finally get into my dorm room and from here I like actually have a plan like this is what I knew what we were going to do but I'm still really nervous so I'm trying to think in my head like okay what did we do in the class that was good so I have him stand in the corner just stand there and I say that he does not yet have the gift of looking at me that is one of my favorite parts from the class I'm like you don't have the gift of looking at me because I'm a gift and you do not deserve it yet Uh. (laughs) oh man but really, I'm just, like, taking this time to just breathe deeply and just, like, not be panicking this whole time. Because I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, there's a man in my room standing in the corner, and he's doing it. Like, I told him to stand in the corner, and he's doing it. <laughs> so this is intense. Uh, and finally, I'm like, okay. And he's a CrossFit guy. He's really good looking. He's like, cut. And so the first thing I do is I just have him take off his shirt so I can literally just like look at him and just like run my hands over his body and just super objectify him. Which to me is like amazing because as a woman that happens to us all the time, but without our consent, it just happens constantly. So for me to just be like checking out this guy and like making him kind of uncomfortable, but he's into it, I'm into it. And then I say, all right, it's like time for the foot massage part. So, what I do is I sit on my bed. You can all do this at home if you want. Uh, Very easy. And you just have them sit on the ground. You wrap your legs around their necks. You're like kind of choking them, but like not too much. Uh, And I ask him, what have you, and this is good because I didn't have to look directly in his eyes. I could just, he was sitting down there and I'm up here. And I ask him, what have you done for your goddess this week? And he tells me that instead of going to his CrossFit classes, which were very important to him, he skipped it and paid for a class to learn how to do massage instead. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, this is so good. But again, I'm like, no, don't act happy. Like, this, is, this happens to you all the time. Uh, and so I tell him that's good. And he starts to massage my feet and my calves. And he's, like, getting really into it. And I'm starting to get more into this dominant persona and that we're actually there Uh, and I'm telling him that I own him now, and it's awesome. (laughs) And then at some point, he's starting to get really into it, and he asks me to take off my clothes. And this kind of goes, one, against the dynamic. And I'm a little tempted to do it, because to be honest, in the past, I've had relationships with men where I go farther with them than I would want to sexually just because I like them and I want the thing to keep going, so I just do it. And I was like, wait. No, like, what are you thinking? This is, you're dominant in this situation. You can do whatever the fuck you want. And so I tell him, no, like, you're just going to massage me. That's all this is going to be. You're not getting off. This is not for you. This is for me. And it was amazing to say that. And just to have that power dynamic totally switched with a man. And I tell him, like, you're going to finish this massage, and you're going to get out of here, and you're not going to look at me because, again, I'm a gift, and you get to look at me as a gift. Uh... And also, before he's about to leave, I also add, um, and now on, when you're going to masturbate, you're going to have to ask me for... for, I can't even say it now. You're going to have to ask me for permission first. And I was just like, no one told me to say that. That just came out of my own mouth. I just said it. After that point, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to use this summer to keep on exploring myself sexually. And I was in New York. I decided to take full advantage... So I was going to sex clubs. I was meeting all these people who were into so many different things. Like I saw fire play and like wax play and people using electricity. Like people who were sissies, people who were mermaids, people who dressed up like cats. <laughs> and it was just so interesting to be in this world where I was constantly pushing my boundaries. And I noticed that in my regular dating life or like my vanilla dating life I had more people than ever asking me out. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I'm getting more confident. And the things that had happened to my sister started happening to me. I had people spending $400 on dinner for me, and I had people asking me to go to the Hamptons. And it was really cool, but for some reason, I honestly didn't feel that happy with it. And I thought about why I liked women who were dominatrixes. And I realized that the reason that I liked them is because they didn't give a shit what other people thought about them. They didn't need other people to validate them. They just love themselves as they are. I realized that I had made that transformation when a guy asked me to go to the Hamptons with him and I didn't even care. I was like, why, like, I don't even wanna do that. But before this whole experience, I would have been thrilled. In the class that I took, the dominatrix class, the woman promised that we would find what she called our inner pussy power. That's what she had said. And uh, so really when I had a guy spend $400 on dinner on me and then asked me to go home to sleep with him, I felt totally confident saying no. And that's when I knew that I had found my own pussy power. Thank you.
0: When all around you there are lies Just to get you spies Just to get you
2: to buy so they can get you There are cameras in the sky This is Risk. This is Brett Denon behind me now. I just created a Spotify playlist called The Best of Risk Music. If you look it up on Spotify, just look up The Best of Risk Music. It's curated by Kevin Allison, and uh, in the process... I heard some of these great songs, our favorite songs we've featured on the show, and I decided to revisit some of those artists and see what they've done since then. So this is a nice little new Brett Denon song that I discovered in that process. Now, we just heard from Jillian Richardson, who you can find on Twitter at That Jillian. And before that, we heard an interstitial by our fabulous episode editor, Mr. Jeff Barr, That was called Wart the Fuck. Uh, Now, I want to talk to you guys about about Blue Apron. I'm sure you've already heard about Blue Apron. They are one of the creme de la creme of the hip, popular, new startups of the past several years. It's because it's such a great idea. They make it easy to make incredible home cooking. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers easy to follow seasonal recipes of really delicious gourmet meals. You don't have to overspend at restaurants anymore or go to, you know, grocery stores looking for this, that, and the other. Blue Apron has partnered with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States to ensure their ingredients are of the highest quality. And because they ship the exact amount, you're not gonna be wasting food, right? Some of the meals available in March include salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli, pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips, spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. I mean, come on! Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com risk. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash risk. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Now, our final story for this week's episode comes to us from We were in Seattle. Oh gosh, I think it was last summer. It was a while back. And this young man, Samuel Routh, got up and shared a story. Sam had been on stage before, but had never shared anything as serious and personal as this story. So here he is now. This is Samuel Routh at Risk Live in Seattle with a story we call An Inconvenient Truth.
5: So it was early 2009, I was 17 years old, and I was a fresh high school dropout. And I spent most of my time working at this restaurant as a host, and so every morning I would do the same thing, kind of get ready, smoke a little weed, go to work. This one morning, I get a phone call, and it's from my mother, and she says, Son, it's mommy. I need you to come up to my work whenever you get off. It's like, what's up? What's going on? She goes, it doesn't matter. I just need you to come up here as soon as you can. So I go to work. I get off. And I arrive at her work. And she works at this place called the Park Ventura Endoscopy Center. So it's an endoscopy center. They do endoscopies. They stick hoses in your... And Yeah, they stick them in your butt and in your, down your throat So that they can check you for cancer and other tumors and things like that And so she worked as a post-op pre-op nurse And so she spent all of her time going around to all these patients And she would sing to them And she was the best nurse there And everybody loved her And all the people that worked there just absolutely loved her And so I got to walk in and I see her there And she's singing to her patients Which is totally normal thing for her And she says, I need you to go into the back room and wait for me there so I go into the back and she comes in and she shuts the door and she sits down. She looks me in the face and she says, I know that there's a plot out to kill me and I know that you're involved and I want you to admit to it. So how did we get here? This is pretty extreme. It started earlier in 2008, just after Thanksgiving. She started exhibiting some very strange behavior, kind of misplacing things, but was actually sure that somebody had taken them. And then one day she comes to me and she says, hey, I came home and I found leaves in my bed. I'm Not really sure what that was all about. And she said, I think it's somebody trying to send me a message saying that you're going to be sleeping under the leaves soon, as in under the ground, dead. I was like, okay, mom, like, that's a little bit weird, but you know, it's, it's whatever, sure, sure, that's happening. Okay, we're I'm just going to move on. And she you know, got a little pissy about it and continued on. And then the next day when I came home, I found leaves in my bed. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I don't understand. So I pick up the leaves and I throw them outside and I go to my mom and I'm like, hey, mom, I found leaves in my bed. And she goes... I don't know what you're talking about I'm like okay we're going to continue moving forward here her behavior starts to get worse and worse and one night she busts into my room at three o'clock in the morning practically kicks the door in and she's in an absolute frenzy she's just like oh my god I don't know something's happening something's happening something's happening to me I was like, what? You know, I'm trying to sleep and I'm 17 and I care more about that than anything else. So I'm like, just God, mom, shut up and leave my room. I'm just, I'm trying to sleep. She ended up storming out with a, oh, you don't even care, slam the door. So I didn't know what was going on until I noticed that she started carrying knives sticking out of her purse. And she would carry them everywhere that she went, just, you know, sticking right up out of the top of her purse, pointy end, out. Out. Not the other end out, the pointy end out. You know? And I asked her about it, and she goes, well, in case anybody decides to come after me, I want them to know that I have a knife. I'm like, okay, Mom, I don't really know what's happening here. I don't know what's going through your head, but you know, I'm just going to kind of continue on. And I started sleeping with my door locked. So now I'm sitting across the desk from her, and she's telling me yes. I know that there's a plot out to kill me, and I know that you're involved, and I want you to admit to it. So all of the previous behavior is starting to kind of come together, and I don't know if she's joking. I don't know if she's telling the truth. I just tell her that she's crazy. I said, Mom, you're crazy. None of this is actually happening. I don't know why you think this is happening, but it's not. She reaches into her purse, and she pulls out a piece of paper, and on the piece of paper, it's an admissions warrant for me. And it's admitting me to the Timberlawn Psychiatric Center in downtown Dallas. And it's signed by a judge, the same judge that signed off on me dropping out of school. It says that she's admitting me because I'm plotting to kill her. And she puts it in front of me and she goes, if you don't admit to this, then I'm going to have you committed. So I'm 17, stuck between a very big rock and a hard place and... I have a choice. I can tell her the truth, that she's crazy, she'll think it's a lie, and I'll end up getting put away, and I don't know what's going to happen to me after that. Or I can tell her what she wants to hear, and maybe I can save my own skin. So I said, yes, there are people trying to kill you. And she's just... Oh, yes. Yes. Like you could see like just her eyes open up like she was so relieved to hear it. And she goes, it's your father and your sister, right? Sure. It's 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 them. It's it's everybody that you think it is. It's me. It's dad. It's Emma. We're all plotting to kill you. This is actually happening. She says, that's all I need to hear. And she grabs me by the hand and she drags me into her boss's office and she yells at her boss. She goes, he admitted to everything. Call the police. And she turns around, and she grabs me in her arms, and, and it's like, I'm just, I'm sitting here holding her, and she's just crying, and crying, and crying. And I look at her boss, who's sitting there at the table, and she doesn't know what to do. Very obviously does not know what to do. And I kind of have to look at her, and I say, call the police right now. Something needs to be done, I don't care who it is that they come and get, but The police need to come here now. So she calls the police. I was so traumatized by the event that whenever the police got there and they separated me from my mother, they were asking me what was happening, and it was kind of a mixture of what she wanted me to admit to, like the plot to kill her, along with she's the one who's really crazy, please save me. So they take me away. I'm put in handcuffs and they escort me to what's known as Green Oaks. I'm put under a 24-hour watch protection from everybody. And the nurses try to kind of coax the story, the real story out of me. They're saying, you know, what's going on with your mother? Why don't you tell us the truth? And I was so afraid of her and what she would possibly do if I told the truth. From there, I was transferred to the C-Center Uh, which is a safe place for teens mainly for teenagers whose parents don't know how to deal with them anymore and I spent the next week in this facility and I wasn't sure if the doctors at Green Oaks just forgot to tell them but I spent the next week in that facility trying to convince these doctors that I was not the one who was crazy but that she was the one who was crazy And it's really hard to do that when they're pretty sure that you're the one who's crazy and you're the one who's in the nut house. My final day, I get called by my psychiatrist for a meeting. And as I walk up to the room, I see my mother storm out of the office and I try to reach out to her. And she just continues on. And I go inside the room, and I sit down, and my psychiatrist says, you ever heard of the phrase CTD? I'm 17. I don't know what this means. He says it's called circling the drain. That's a uh, mental health term we like to have around here for people like your mother. Your mother is not doing well. You need to get as far away from her as you possibly can. She is a threat to herself, others, and you. Do you have anywhere else safe that you can go? I didn't have any way to contact my father or my sister. I didn't really have a way to contact anybody. So I told the doctor no. And the next day, they released me back into her care. Within an hour, I had gotten away from her. And it took a lot of work, but I managed to pull myself up after a few weeks of hopping from friend's house to friend's house, only being able to stay there a couple of nights because they were worried that my mother was going to show up. I finally arrived where my father lived on the other side of Texas, in Midland, Texas, on March the 7th, 2009. Three days later, on March the 10th, I get pulled into my grandparents' living room where I see my sister and my entire father's side of the family sitting there. And they sit me and my sister down, and my sister instantly just grabs my hand like she knows that something's going on. And my father says, your mother killed herself. Three days after I had left. I remember my grandmother trying to hold me. I pushed her away And I ran into the back room And really all I wanted to do Was just shove my head Through a wall Because I was right there I was right there The whole time I could have been there If I had known I could have done something So I had this tremendous amount of guilt That just started to eat me alive On the inside It wasn't until later that I discovered that my mother had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. My mother's side of the family had known for a while that she had been a little on the edge but decided that it was safer for us to just stay with her and they could watch at a distance. But you saw how that turned out. So I can say that finding out Why she committed suicide was because of my mother's illness. It really definitely helped soften the blow. But it was that knowing all she needed was those words. All she needed was just somebody to confirm for her that yes, there were people trying to kill her and that's all it took for her to go downhill. It's a little easier to deal with knowing her disease, but it still hurts. To know that I lied just to save my own skin. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Travel me east to let my ass feast on the first of the morning light. From the leaves of the whispering trees Creep the lyrics I've yet to write Though the scenery inanimate and stale And the sky an inadequate gray I was so on to the dream with The song that you gave me And I'm gone, yes I'm gone, gone away
2: That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sean Russell-Jones behind me now, and let me let you know... Where Risk is Happening Next. We are in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater on March 18th. Sovereign Sire will be there. Brian Babylon will be there. That's going to be an amazing show. On March 18th, we are also in Burlington, Vermont. I'm going to be there. That is a fabulous show. We're working on four phenomenal stories right now for that Burlington show on March 18th. On April 9th. We're back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Michael Ian Black will be there. Don Will will be there. Um, there's a, there's someone I haven't yet confirmed, but that's going to be a very exciting show. April 22nd, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg. Minneapolis, on April 29th, we are back at Brave New Workshop. The theme that night is action. On May 20th, we're in Denver. Denver, we're coming back on May 20th. The theme is irresistible. So Minneapolis on April 29th, Denver on May 20th. Pitch us, guys. Go to wrist-show.com slash submissions and pitch us for those shows. Now, there's still more, guys. Coming up on June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. The theme is hype. On June 10th, we're in Seattle, Washington. The theme is destructive. On June 11th, we're in Vancouver. The theme is monster. Pitch us for those shows. wrist showcom slash submissions, and you might be a part of One of those shows and don't forget if you want to work on your storytelling, that's what we do at the You can get one-on-one training over Skype with me, or you can download our video courses and learn in your own time at your own pace, or you can hire us to do a workshop for your staff or a creative team of your own at storystudio.org We've got one special workshop coming up in Minneapolis. It's on April 30th. On April 30th in Minneapolis, I will be co-teaching a workshop with the wonderful Amy Salloway, a great storytelling teacher. The two of us will be teaching a one-day storytelling for business workshop. So if you want to work on your skills, how to communicate around the office or in your career, preparing for job interviews, preparing for speeches, preparing just how to pitch someone, something over lunch for example, come to our one day storytelling for business workshop in Minneapolis on April 30th taught by me and Amy Salloway. There's always more to find at thestorystudio.org studio.org and of course you can find the rest of what we do at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
0: So long I'm leaving, I'm gone. It now so
2: Now, I want to talk to you guys about... (laughs)